Because execution pays your salary, but innovation pays your pension. And everybody needs to understand that context. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast, we introduce Steve Blank, legendary entrepreneur, professor, and father of the lean startup movement. Joining me as co-host today is Professor Dries Fahms, Chair in Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and Technological Transformation at VHAU. Together we'll be discussing Steve's founder journey, but more importantly, the concept of innovation theater. Those incubators, accelerators, and corporate innovation labs that look slick from the outside, but tend not to produce many tangible results. Steve is an absolute legend in startup circles and is full of nuggets of wisdom. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we did recording it. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Well, folks, welcome to the latest edition of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast. Um, as you can see, we have two esteemed guests with us today. Many of you may know Professor Dries Fams, who's the Chair of Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and Technological Transformation here at VHU, um, as well as Mr. Steve Blank, Professor Steve Blank, who uh, many of you know is uh, the father of the customer development methodology, uh, which is at the roots of the lean startup method. He has led the development of the lean launchpad. And uh, rather than butcher his bio, I'll let him kind of tell that story a little more. First of all, uh, welcome, Steve. Thank you for joining us on our humble podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be here. Awesome. Um, so I like to start all of our episodes um, asking kind of the same question of all of our founders, entrepreneurs, and innovators that are that are on the show. Maybe you could start um, telling us a little bit about your journey as an entrepreneur, where you come from, and how you've got to where you are today. Great. Uh, I'm trying to make it short. Um, I, uh, I grew up in uh, New York City, a parents of, uh, child of immigrants to the United States. Uh, I spent uh, four years in the U.S. Air Force during Vietnam, a year and a half in Southeast Asia, um, came out to Silicon Valley and uh, essentially did eight startups in 21 years. Uh, you know, started at the lowest level you can as a lab technician, training instructor, ended up in marketing uh, for a good chunk of my career, and then uh, CEO and co-founder of uh, four startups at the end. Um, I retired at the last uh, internet bubble and then started thinking about the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, you know, when you were a practitioner, your head is down and focused on just a very narrow boresight. But then I had time kind of early in my career to, to start thinking about how did we get here and why were we doing the things we were doing? And, and uh, my conclusion was, is we were doing how to write a business plan because that's what investors kind of knew from large companies. But actually it was an impediments match 
no business plan survived first contact with customers. And uh, I realized that startups needed very different tools because they were doing very different things than large companies, but none existed. And so my work, Eric Reese's work and Alexander Osterwalter's work ended up becoming the sum, the, the kind of an innovation stack to, to kind of match the execution stack that, that had been developed for a hundred years, it turned into something called the Lean Startup. And so for the last 20 years, I've been working with uh, first startups and then um, corporations and now government agencies on how to kind of uh, build innovation tools and then now innovation processes and also to avoid innovation pitfalls because as we'll talk a little later, uh, startups, one of the first insights was that startups weren't smaller versions of large companies. When we talk about innovation theater, we're gonna discover that large companies and government agencies aren't bigger versions of startups. Um, so that has been my career in, uh, uh, in a nutshell. I'm really interested in, you know, customer development and the whole concept behind it really comes from this idea that startups don't operate as like big businesses do. But I know you wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review in 2019 about why why companies do innovation theater. And, you know, a, a lot of this is about taking some of the principles that you have developed and tested around the lean startup and the customer development method and uh, looking at corporate innovation through that lens. Uh, can you maybe first explain kind of how you came up with this term uh, innovation theater, what it means to you, and maybe how you see the differences in those innovation processes in these two very different contexts? Sure. And, and just for context, I'm, I'm sure your audience understands it, but, but for the two who, who might not, you, you know, what's happened in the last decade or two to large corporations uh, isn't that they've gotten dumber. It's that the world has gotten, you know, completely changed. If you got your an MBA older than five or 10 years ago, everything you know other than accounting is obsolete. Not, not because the classes were wrong, but you know, I don't have to list them, but I will. You know, China, globalization, the internet devaluing brands, which used to, you know, your company built up for a hundred years are now kind of irrelevant because someone could create a new one in, in years. The notion that a startup could raise more money than you can, I mean, it's just insane. Who would have thought of that? And when I was an entrepreneur, startups were what were called ankle biters, that they could maybe, you know, get up to your ankle, but they were never peers in terms of capital. Um, and so a whole set of things have now changed the landscape. So large companies now to kind of set the scene started getting very interested about, well, how do, can we move more rapidly? And they discovered that they, did, they didn't have tools for rapid innovation. It's not that they didn't innovate, of course they innovated. But remember in the 20th century, large corporations were competing with their peers who were moving at the cl same clock speed. And, and now, and again, we tend to use the word disruption, but it's the sum of all these other changes that require most of them to now kind of go, what's going on? How can we move this fast? And so the natural tendency was then to go look at startups. Um, and I have to apologize to every large company out there because what, what kind of was a catalyst to this is that the cover of the Harvard Business Review, as you mentioned in May 2013, was why the lean startup changes everything. I called it the the day the health health froze over article because whoever <laughs> thought HBR would be like writing about startups. Um, and so for the last seven or so years, now to answer your question, large companies have been running, a, the, the best example of an innovation theater is, you know, running incubators and accelerators internally, and they have 
posters in the cafeteria that say innovate and that you can now bring your dogs to work in some parts of the company and, and whatever. And, and that's all great until you look at the outcome and you go, well, did you move the needle on either revenue or profit or market share or whatever, you know, ROI? And the answer is, hey, look at this coffee cup we have. Or, and, and that's innovation theater where you have all the accoutrements of innovation, but nothing really affected the the corporation's top, bottom, or whatever line you wanted to measure. Um, but we used the right words and we had the right posters and our CEO got pictures with beanbag chairs and, you know, whatever. Um, does that does that answer your question of what it is? Um, yeah, and I think I, I liked what you said, that that you don't think companies have gotten more stupid. But, but at the same time, then the question becomes, why is this happening, this innovation theater? And why does it seem to happen every time again? Well, I think it happens because one is, you know, in the U.S. boards of directors and, and Europe managing, you know, boards, management boards, all are looking for solutions. And if you're a CEO, um, think about this. What's really interesting is the CEOs of large corporations who aren't the founders, that is not tech companies who like like still running Netflix and the rest, but, but just founders, uh, excuse me, just the C normal CEOs, they're usually not crazy entrepreneurs. They're usually world-class executors. So, so number one is they know how to manage and scale and run finance or great came out of sales or something else. Um, so they kind of do what I call the innovation head nod that they all nod to say, yes, we need, we need this stuff. And, and they'll kind of ask you, does it come in a five or 10 pound bag? Um, and so what you're getting the answer to your question is what you're getting is, well, what do they do in the startup world? Oh, they run incubators and accelerators. And, and there's the conundrum. And we could go down the list, but it's kind of interesting to list the types of things that startups can do that large companies can't. And so, for example, in a startup, 100% of the company is focused on crazy innovation, meaning everyone's bet their job and career on that. That's simply not true in a large corporation. Most people come to work for this paycheck. They come in at nine, they go home at five, or you know they're on Zoom from nine to five or whatever. In a startup, you're sleeping under the table um, for better or worse. Um, number two is, and really interesting, is if you think about it, startups could do anything. And I don't mean anything, anything. I mean anything that even breaks the law, at least in the United States. Um, all the large companies that we know of, Airbnb, Tesla, you know, um, Uber, all were designed to say, well, there's this huge market here, but what if we broke the law and did X or Y? Now, can you imagine in a large corporation, if your general counsel came into your office and said, if you were a hotel chain, hey, what if we you know, rented out apartments? They'd yeah. be asking you, what, what kind of uniform would you like in jail? You know, what size are you going to wear? Um, you know, and, and, and then we go through a whole set of differences that, that kind of get it in our way in a large corporation. Um, so innovation and, and in a large company and a startup are very different. And the, and the point is we need different rules and different processes, but instead we've ended up doing, copying innovation activities rather than building innovation processes. And, and what I mean by that, and, and I don't want to jump to the answer and cut me off if, if it's- No, no, go ahead, go ahead. To, to get here. 
is that, you know, the best remote diagnostic I can now do for, for a company doing innovation theater is when, oh, we got, an, we got an accelerator, we got an incubator, oh, isn't that great? And I go, what happens to the output of those successful teams? Well, you know, well, no, no, no. How, how do they get deployed into in, your sales channel? Oh, we're still figuring that out. Boom, uh, immediately you have innovation theater. Now, what I mean by that is almost always the outputs of uh, real innovation create conflict in large companies. They have channel conflict or their conflict with manufacturing resources and whatever. And these are the process things that actually need to get defined before <laughs> you set up these innovation processes because the, the, they will occur by, I mean, that by design they'll occur. Yet most CEOs either want to avoid those conversations or, again, are more than happy um, to satisfy the press or their board that we're doing innovation or and or truly don't understand how this works. But you're saying you're saying the the that almost by definition these new innovations trigger conflict. Yeah. And and my feeling is that therefore the response of a lot of top managers in corporates is let's put it separate to avoid to avoid the conflict playing out. But at the same time, that actually seems to increase the likelihood that it cannot have an impact on the business. So you seem to have this this fundamental tensions between separation and the need for collaboration. Do you have, do you have a perspective on that? Well, how should companies deal with that? Yeah, it turns out that about 30 years ago, McKinsey came up with a great way to kind of think about the types of innovation that are done in corporation. And, and, and I'm usually not one to quote McKinsey stuff, but, but <laughs> in this case, it's very useful for, to explain to senior management. There are three horizons of innovation, as they call them. Horizon one is, you know, we're doing, we have existing products or services, let's make them incrementally better. And that yeah. is innovation and, you know, new features and we've listened to the customers or some engineer had a great idea. That type of innovation truly belongs inside of existing engineering and product management groups and good companies do that all the time, but that is innovation. Yeah. There's a second type of, second horizon of innovation that says, huh, let's take our existing products and sell them to a new customer set, or let's use our supply chain or our you know, distribution channel or something else to sell other products. That is, let's kind of repurpose you know, some, some of the parts of our business model to, to create new value. That's horizon two. And one could argue that still should be in existing P&Ls, it, but it is innovation and we need processes for doing that. How do we get into new markets? How do we whatever? The part that needs to be separate is what called horizon three. That's disruptive innovation. And disruptive innovation, number one, is what Silicon Valley funds. We typically, the VCs typically don't fund horizon one stuff. I mean, some do, and maybe some will do horizon two, but horizon three are the Teslas and the Ubers and the SpaceX's and the whatever. But if you try to put those inside of an existing P&L, You can almost set your watch to what happens at the end of the quarter. Oh, we're, we need more people. Let's move them off of this project, which isn't going to give us any immediate need. Oh, well, you know, we've run out of budget or it's not on our schedule or whatever. Horizon three things are eventually, if they succeed, are the things that the company will actually be doing in five years. Yeah. That is, innovation starts at the edges and moves in. But but it almost it almost feels that you are saying 
leave disruptive innovation to the startups. No, I'm saying that disruptive innovation is different from the core business and okay. companies have a choice that they could acquire it, they could partner it, they could build it inside, they could have a skunk works, they could have other, because here's the other key differentiation. Not only is it what startups do, its culture is fundamentally different than the rest of the company. It's a big idea it, it, because, because Horizon One, think about it. If this isn't an incremental addition to product line, failure is not an option. You should have known what the, what the customer's needs were, the technology, whatever. That, that pipeline ought to look from beginning to end, that failure rate ought to be incredibly low. Horizon Two, we're taking a little more risk, but we have a set of knowns. In Horizon Three, that is a, 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 you know, a VC funnel. It's not a pipeline, it's a funnel. If you're not failing in Horizon Three activities, you're not actually doing any. Right. If you're trying to eliminate risk here, it's not like you want to fail a lot, but you want to take a lot of shots at the goal. That's hard inside of a company to try to explain why this group has no tolerance for failure. And, and this group here ought to be failing a lot. How do you do that? Well, if you don't separate them, you know, yeah. you also have this culture problem. Does that does that kind of yeah, that makes sense? Yeah, I'd be really interested in understanding how bigger organizations handle these kind of horizon three innovations. You know, I think there's some obviously some systemic and structural challenges that they have to accomplish. We see a lot of examples here in Europe of the the larger companies that are are trying to innovate. Some catastrophically fail. There's some great, some pretty good examples. You know, one, can they do it and still remain tethered to the mothership? Do they have to take more of a corporate venture capital approach? Like what do you see as some of the the identifiers of successful innovation? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. <laughs> all. I mean, the good news is for a large company that this is one of the advantages you have over startups. You know, you could buy IP, intellectual property. You could acquire acquire teams. You could buy product lines. You could buy, you could do licensing deals. You could do partnerships. And I mean, there's a whole hierarchy of ways to acquire disruptive innovation. The, the real mistake, and this isn't innovation theater, it's just how do you, in fact, integrate innovation in, in if you're acquiring it, or even if you're, you have it in a separate building, is educating the rest of the company, including your, it, almost always, the, the person who kills this stuff is the VP of sales, not out of malice, but out of self-interest. Um, you know, I describe the sales organizations as coin-operated. You know, you put coins in and you, you give them a comp plan and they will do a compensation plan. They do whatever you tell them and anything that gets in their way, like they will remove, um, which will be great tactically, but sometimes strategically, you know, ends up killing the things that you need for long term success. So step one in any large corporation of trying to get disruptive innovation, whether you build it or buy it, is to educate the company about the long term needs for being able to have what's called an ambidextrous organization, one that could execute and innovate. And this was an idea um, by Tushman and O'Reilly in the 20th century um, that was a big idea. It was nice to have in the 20th century, but is essential to have in the 21st century. I wanna say it again, an ambidextrous organization, one that could innovate and execute um, has to be something that the CEO and the board is insisting that you figure out how to do. 
and that you need to, in fact, as a 21st century CEO, be prepared to deal with these conflicts that will come up about short-term gain that your VP of sales says channel conflict and you know, your, your kind of disruptive people say, no, this is the future. And that isn't, and how you, how you kind of tread that water is, is what a 21st century CEO needs to know how to do. I'm very interested in this concept of a ambidextrous organization because an organization, you know, by default is made up of people. Do those people have to be ambidextrous? Can the same people that operate in a more traditional corporate environment, you know, drive innovation or do you need a different mentality, different culture, different individuals to be able to do it? So, so remember those three horizon models, and again, that's just a construct to get your head around that the, you could use whatever. I happen to like that because it, it helps me answer that question is for the first two horizons, that is the same people. You just need to explain them the difference between an incremental innovation, which we ought to be doing every day to, to just stay relevant, versus finding new markets. But, but I'll contend the people doing disruption truly are different. They're different leadership, they're different people, they're different whatever. Um, and, but unlike a startup, and here's the big idea, is that even in those disruptive groups, the successful ones figure out how to partner with the rest of the organization, right? They're not just raising the pirate flag over, you know, over the building and saying, screw you guys, or else you might as well just spin them out, which sometimes is also a good strategy, or, or you probably shouldn't do it inside and just buy them when they're larger, pay more, but, but you've also reduced and bought down risk. Which is actually a bit different from what Tushman and O'Reilly initially said, not because they were really saying you need to build a kind of Chinese wall between your exploration and your exploitation. And you seem to deviate a bit from that. Well, I deviate simply because in, in, even in, um, you know, even if you're building a skunk works, meaning, you know, like Lockheed did in the, in, in the 50s and 60s, you still need, you know, the machine shop or you still need, you know, supply chain or I mean, if if you could isolate them completely, that's great. But usually it's much more efficient in a perfect world if you can actually take advantage of some of the assets of the corporation. Maybe the existing supply chain is actually pretty good. Maybe you need a new sales channel, but the supply chain is wonderful. Gee, let me get somebody from manufacturing as part of the team. You know, I want to wall off HR and finance, which usually are the two organizations that killed disruption. Um, yeah. for, for, uh, so, so what we discovered is that to make things work inside of a company for all um, horizons, and I'll just give you one tactical example, is, is remember I said the big idea about a startup in the lean method was finding out that we needed different rules and whatever. To do innovation inside a, a corporation in the 21st century, I say you need, number one, at the highest level, an innovation doctrine. That is a kind of a, a, a methodology to think about innovation. And number one, it starts with context. Everybody needs to, to share what's going on in the world. You know, where are we going? Are we going to be fine with our existing products? No, we're not. Well, well, the exec staff at minimum needs to go, oh, I get it. I'm executing for now, but boy, we, we ought to be executing for later because, because execution pays your salary, but innovation pays your pension. And everybody needs to understand that context. Um, 
And then, you know, leadership needs to figure out what the what the roles are and, and how do we deal with conflict. Then there needs to be process and then there needs to be tools. So you need kind of an innovation stack. I'll give you a great example of tactics. I suggest to every large corporation who runs into this innovation execution conflict is that all your support organizations, finance, HR, supply, et cetera, all have OKRs and process manuals, et cetera. They all need Appendix A for innovation. That is, okay. show me where Appendix A is. Well, what, yeah. is that, what does that mean? Well, for a group that's in an innovation, for an innovation group, Horizon 1 or 2 or even Horizon 3, show me the HR manual for, for the innovation groups. Well, we don't have one. Well, that means that you're treating everybody who's trying to move fast or break rules like, like outliers. Like, and, and so what happens is innovation in large companies tend to be done by heroics rather than by design. So we tend to celebrate the heroes who have kind of broken through and made it. Made it. We're, no one's ever realized that every time you give an award for heroics, you're actually celebrating that you have a screwed up organization, that you haven't put the repeatable processes in place because the next time someone needs to refight that same battle next week or next month. Why don't we just concatenate all those, all those heuristics and put them in Appendix A? We don't want 99% of the company doing that, but, but when someone says, no, I'm in an approved innovation pro process, you go into legal and they say, oh, you're allowed to break these rules. Or you go into finance and they say, no, you, have a, you actually do have a $25,000 budget. If you want to spend it on like trade shows or flying around the world, talking to customers, okay. But you know, like we'll get you later, but yeah, approved. Yeah. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. So, so it means it's not only an ambidextrous structure, it's also ambidextrous processes. Yeah. Yeah, that's part. Yes, that's a great observation. And so, and if you think about it, it's creating those that that ambidextrous process doesn't put the rest of the company at risk because you've made it a process, yeah. right? Rather than this free for all of oh, I did this at night when no one was looking, or I, I mean, you, we all hear these heroic stories. So today, innovation is act, point activities, individual heroics, etc. And I believe if we had a doctrine, you know, that encompasses ambidexterity and the three horizons and some Appendix A stuff, you pretty much could kind of put together a set of heuristics that allow large companies to understand how to how to do innovation. It still doesn't change the, the type of people you need, but at least lets the executors understand you know, oh, there are different people. And yes, there are different rules for a small subset uh, who are moving much faster than our existing process. And if you take the perspective of the employee, because for instance, we at our business school, we have a lot of students that have entrepreneurial aspirations. And so a lot of them also end up in accelerators and incubators of these large corporates. What would for them be kind of early warning signals so that they quickly see, oh, innovation theater is going on? But, but The first question is, tell me how the output of this incubator accelerator gets yeah. deployed to customers, right? Tell me and show me some examples of yeah. how that's happened. Yeah. And, and, it, and when, when people start looking at their shoes and shuffling <laughs> their feet and looking up there, uh, you know that that's, that's kind of missing. Yeah, so if they go and apply for a job and uh, the other manager cannot explain that, you should not take the job, something like that. 
or you should say, well, what's your plan for, oh, we'll figure that out later. You know, I, it, it's not that that never happens, but it really means that, that the senior execs have really not bought into making this an integral part of the process, that it's again, theater. The other thing that they should understand, and I now kind of explain this to all my students um, who think they're entrepreneurs, in reality, there are at minimum two types of people that are needed for a startup, inside or outside a company. And that's the inventor or the innovator. And the second one is the entrepreneur. And they're usually not the same person. Sometimes they are. But for example, you know, Apple, there was Wozniak and Jobs. Wozniak was the, you know, was the innovator, but he would still be in his basement without the entrepreneur. But Steve Jobs could never have built a computer. I mean, he just saw an opportunity and ran with it. You know, Elon Musk, you know, no one knows there are very few people know J.B. Straubel was the one who built Tesla. Um, he was the innovator. But boy, J.B. would still be driving around Palo Alto in a you know, electric Porsche without uh, without a $30 billion company around them without without Musk. And, and, you know, Gates and Allen at Microsoft, we go through the list. Um, inside a company, though, the entrepreneur takes on different characteristics is that instead of just dealing with external customers, they're actually great at bureaucratic infighting and actually figuring out how to work the internal system. And in fact, when you do lean inside of a company, at least half your time needs to be spent in doing internal customer discovery as much as it is on external stuff until, unless you have Appendix A processes, because you know what you need is to figure out your way around existing systems that were not designed for innovation. They were designed for kind of stage gate-like schedule and budget and whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. I know you do a lot of work uh, also in the public sector, and I come from a, a background prior to my entrepreneurial career working with, with government organizations. Are you finding these same types of patterns, um, innovation theater, the way, the way the government organizations are trying to innovate? Are you seeing the same obstacles and challenges in that context as well? Yes, and worse. I mean, uh, so... <laughs> No, I'll just give you some basics. So remember I said in a, in a startup, you could do anything. In a, a corporation, you could do anything that's legal. But in a, most government organizations, you can only do things that actually the law said you could, not just are legal, but are actually mandated by law. So, so here you have in a startup, the, the world, in a, in a corporation, you know, your corporate counsel and maybe the, the, the local district attorney or whatever. And but, but in government organizations, no, 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 here's the Title 10, you know, says exactly what we could do. And if you do anything out of there, you, you really could go to jail. Um, so, so government organizations are even more constrained. And historically, people have taken government jobs who are less innovative, who are actually quite happy to come to work. And, and by the way, I don't use that as a pejorative. I just use that to, you know, there are different types of people. Some people, you know, work to live and other people live to work. And startups and entrepreneurs fall into the latter category. And most normal people fall into the, no, I just show up to work so I could like have the rest of my life. Um, and, and um, but it doesn't mean there isn't a ton of innovative people in government organizations. Um, almost in every large government organization I've dealt with in the United States, there's usually an innovators alliance sitting in the basement, you know, who historically, um, 
excuse the expression, bitch at each other. But, but here's the other big idea. In, certainly in government organizations and even in companies, but in government organizations is even more um, pronounced, is these people tend to love to be heroes, but in fact, very few of them want to work on organizational design on how to stop being heroes and make it an integral part of the process. When you point out that, hey, maybe you're beating your head against the wall because there isn't a process. They go, yeah, 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 but let me do some more heroics. Um, when in fact, the real problem is not on the bottom, we got great innovators, the problem's on the top, is no one has handed to senior leadership, here's how we should organize in a different way. And this is true for both companies and government organizations, just more pronounced in the government ones that says, no, 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 if we just change the org structure that looked like this or the incentives that looked like this, we'd get different outcomes. Um, does that make sense? Um, and so I'll lay part of the blame as well, blame being relative uh, on, the, on what entrepreneurs kind of get adrenaline rushes or endorphin rushes off of like crossing the finish line rather than kind of restructuring and thinking about, well, Maybe we don't have to make everything a race. Maybe we could just make it an integral process. By the way, that's what Lean did for startups, right? I mean, we take for granted in the 21st century that there's at least a methodology rather than throw stuff against the wall, whether it's my methodology or someone else's, it doesn't matter. We take for granted that there are a set of tool sets on how you build um, and reduce infant mortality in early stage ventures. Uh, hard to believe in the 20th century, no one knew what to do. So you just kind of did it and like is, came out the other end. Um, I, I think we're at that spot again and thinking about innovation in large organizations it, is we'll finally figure out that there are heuristics and processes we could build that kind of reduce this kind of like make it up and resulting innovation theater. That's just a waste of time and energy um, and, and wondering why some companies succeed at it and others don't. And in fact, the thing to understand is, at least in the United States, you know, the companies that the large corporations that tend to innovate the best were the ones historically still run by their founders. And and if you if you think about that, why is that? Well, instead of having executors as CEOs, you know, it's still the people who understood what innovation processes looked like. Um, and instead of trying to be like Steve Jobs, you should figure out, well, what was the process that Steve Jobs was using? Or, or Reed Hastings at Netflix or, or you know, Elon Musk at Tesla. And, and at the end, most of it comes down to figuring out the difference between innovation and execution. I just want to ask you one other thing. You, you kind of mentioned these tools and processes and heuristics Um that that can be utilized, but I'm interested a little bit in the context and how they're utilized as well. I'm a mentor for TechStars Accelerator. They do some programs that are the city programs. They do other with others with corporate partners. In, in Germany, we're getting this growth of the kind of venture studio type model for innovation. It's almost outsourcing the processes. We see a lot of the corporates here that are trying to build organizational units within themselves. Are you seeing any of these models being more effective at delivering those tools than others? Well, are, are you asking about the tools or are you asking about the outcomes? Well, I'm, I'm asking about which context do you think is leading to the most optimal outcomes? Well, um, to be honest, I, I think they're all innovation theater. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and this isn't a diss at Techstars and whatever, 
but but I think the the point I've been been badly trying to make is that the solution to innovation theater is is not more innovation theater. Um, it, it really is organizational design and new processes that just don't exist today. Um, it, it's it, you know I, I'm going to just put this in context. When I started teaching entrepreneurship and started thinking about customer development, which eventually became Lean, the the best book was by a guy named Timmons, um, you know, on how to write a business plan. And to be honest, it was the best book. It was the pinnacle on how to write a business plan. And that was the ur text that you used. And I actually started teaching until I realized no business plan survives first contact with customers. And, and while this was a great book, it was wrong. Uh, and what we needed to do was not a better version of how to write a business plan. If you really think about what we did is we shot it in its head and buried it, at least for those of us who practice this stuff. It's not that you don't need or, you know, operating plans and the rest, but writing plans before you have any data, you know, it just seemed ludicrous in hindsight. I'll suggest that's where we are with with incubators and accelerators and tech stars and the rest, we've optimized the wrong thing for corporations. I mean, they're the best of the wrong thing. Um, we haven't articulated what the new right thing is, but I think we've, I think I've given your listeners a set of hints. They're about organizational design and new processes and thinking about the distinction between innovation and execution between startups and large companies and also, oh, what is the end-to-end -end result rather than the act individual point activities? Does that answer your question? Yeah, so, so you are optimistic that we will find the methodologies and the tools to make it happen in corporates. Of course, and we're going to spend okay. a lot of wrong money. And, um, and, and, and it's not that people you know, using Techstars or anybody else are doing these incubators are stupid. It's just like people weren't stupid when they were writing business plans. There was no alternative. Um, but I think there will be a next generation of Steve Blanks and Eric Reese's that will stand up and maybe it'll be you, <laughs> you know, or, or someone else go, well, wait a minute, we've done a lot of this and none of it, it's innovation theater. What's missing? Well, it's not a, the answer is not a better incubator. It's not just a better venture studio. It might just be that we're just designed the organization wrong that it might be in the 21st century, we truly need a different organizational design. So we're not having every one of these predictable outcomes of an incubator. Oh, the VP of sales says over their dead body, or gee, it's not on the budget or schedule, or gee, this is a real culture clash with the rest of the company. You could set your watch to these things now. I mean, so these are symptoms of, of not bad incubators. There's nothing wrong with the incubators. They're symptoms of the, this, is, this doesn't fit the process we have. Yeah. Yeah, because you see, for instance, uh, my students friends are very enthusiastic of things like the Spotify model, the holacracy model of Zappos, the microstructures of higher. Do you think that it's moving in that direction, the solution? No. Okay. No. I, think, <laughs> I think it's pretty simple. And I think I, and, and maybe this is just me being wrong, which I could be, but, but I think large organizations by design are process oriented um, because that's how you manage, you know, thousands of people. I mean, you, Right, right. There's kind of Dunbar's number at about 145, and you know there's smaller numbers at, at 845, 150, a couple thousand. In fact, since the Roman legions, we've understood how you do organizational design in terms of, of size and scale. I think we're going to discover that that the solution might be back to what I suggested: is we just simply need 
ambidextrous processes and that they're no longer optional. That every, I mean, if you really think about it, the types of organizational forms we have are still limited to three, right? We have functional organizations, which, you know, kind of came out in the 1850s. We have sales and manufacturing and whatever. And then starting in the early 1900s in the United States with DuPont and then General Motors, we, we discovered divisionalization. We could have it by territory or by product line or whatever. And then in the 50s in the United States, we discovered matrix organizations, right? We're kind of a, think of it as a pickup team. You know, let's take some from engineering and some from, you know, manufacturing. We'll put them together on a single project, but they still report to their functional organizations. And when the project's done, they go back in. That's a matrix. But there really aren't that many other types other than the experiments you're, you're suggesting. And I'm suggesting we haven't come up with the right new functional one. But I don't think the ones you mentioned are the other ones there are. Um, fair point, fair point. And, and, here's, and here's why, is, is that um, the ones you mentioned depend on either having a founder CEO still in charge or changing the culture of the entire organization. And, and I don't believe those ideas are scalable. That is, if you still have the founder CEO, great, you know, okay. And the holacracy assumes that it's kind of like communism. We all want to live in, in, a, in, a, in a commune and share, you know, whatever. That's, we've run that experiment. That's not how normal people like live and thrive. I believe most people come to work to execute, that they, they work to get a salary to live. I think the, we've run enough experiments to say, you can't turn your entire company into innovators, but you can build processes that support the, the crazy people who yeah. do want to be in your company. And so that's a big religious conversation to have up front about when you're thinking about a new type of innovation form inside of a large organization, you first need to say is, can everybody be an innovator? And this gets back to, you know, I believe that founders and innovators are closer to artists than any other profession. That is, they see things that other people don't. They hear things that other people don't. Well, we could train everybody to art appreciation. That's why we teach it in its earliest ages. And it helps you know, people at early ages discover whether they have that innate talent and we could educate them and bring that talent to, to kind of its peak. We realize everybody can't be a great artist. I mean, that's not an argument, right? There's probably more great artists to be discovered, but it's not a talent everybody has. You first have to have that conversation is, do you believe everybody could be a world-class entrepreneur or is it my belief it's kind of like an artistic talent? And if you believe it is, then you kind of find those people, you, you help have them self-identify and you build infrastructure around the, to support them. If you don't believe that, then you do something different, like holacracy. Does that make sense? I mean, no, 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 it makes sense. Awesome, Steve. We only have a couple minutes left, um, but I wanted to ask you a couple quick questions that I ask all the guests that are on the podcast to dig a little bit, learn a little bit about uh, not just Steve the entrepreneur, but but Steve the man. Um, maybe you could start. It's kind of a a question that I ask everybody, but um, you've had a few decades of entrepreneurial experience now, looking back at your your career and all your ventures. Um, do you have any words of wisdom you would give back to your younger self or to aspiring entrepreneurs from what you know now that you wish you had known back then? You know, um, 
I don't know if they're words of wisdom. They're just kind of like, you know, battle scars. Um, so, so I guess I, I tell all my students this now is that, um, you know, every, every almost once a year, almost like clockwork, I, I get uh, a student who comes in and says, uh, typically, typically from business school, hey, Professor Plank, I have a, a choice between two jobs leaving school. Great. What are they? Well, I got an offer from McKinsey. Oh, McKinsey. Well, that's a great, you know, or put in name of, of consulting firm. Well, what's your other option? Oh, me and my friend from, from the dorm are thinking about doing a startup. And let me tell you, and I go, stop. You've already decided. No, let me tell you about the startup. I said, no, you've already decided. Well, what do you mean? You can't keep McKinsey and a startup in your head as the equivalent jobs. They're not jobs. And here's the big idea. Here is the advice. A startup, if you're going to be a founder, this is for founders, is the world's worst job. It's terrible <laughs> because the odds say you're going to fail and you're going to fail badly and your parents will ask you why you're not having a job and you'll lose whatever relationships you have with men or women because you're working so hard. It's the world's crummiest job, but it is the best calling. And if you're called, there is no other career for you. But if you're thinking of it as a job, run away fast. It's like, it's like you could be an early employee or a later employee. It doesn't mean you can't join one. But a founder, again, if you believe my analogy of artists, are called to this. Um, it's something you can't get out of your head. You're thinking 24-7, you know, as, you, as, you drive, as you're in the shower in the morning and you're going to bed at night. You just can't get it out of your blood. And if that's the case, we're at the golden age of entrepreneurship. Um, there's capital for people like you. Um, it, it is the best time ever to kind of go do this. Um, so that's the advice I, I tend to give students. Right, great advice. Great advice. Couple, couple other really, really short questions, um, and then we'll wrap things up. But um, one of the things I learned growing up was when I would meet someone new or visit their home, the first thing I like to do was look on their bookshelf. I feel like you can learn so much about a person but what by what's on their bookshelf. Um, you got a, a particular book to recommend or something that you're reading right now? Well, one I just... Um, I not only read, but, um, and it's very US specific um, and very happened to be uh, oriented to a class I was teaching at Stanford uh, of all things called Technology, Innovation and Modern War. But the, but the book is called The Kill Chain and it's by Chris Brose. Um, and it basically, again, very US centric, but uh, described uh, um, what's happened to the US military vis-a-vis -vis China in the last, uh, 10, 20 years, which was a real wake-up call for the United States. Um, so uh, it, it was kind of about innovation. Um, the insight, by the way, you know, uh, less about war, but more about what happened to even the, our Department of Defense, is that for the last 200 years, the U.S. and other uh, governments were able to do military innovation inside the government. And that is all the technology needed for, quote, war were things that governments owned. In the last 10 or 20 years, that's flipped on its head, is that 5G, robotics, machine learning, AI, autonomy, you know, drones, et cetera, even commercial access to space have all taken out of what used to be military-owned things, and now they're driven by commerce um, and profit. And, and like defense departments across the Western world are all grappling with, well, what do you mean like somebody in their street corner can now you know, build a drone? Um, so that, that, that's my book of the month. Awesome. That's, uh, th uh, that leads to so many other questions I want to ask you, but I think <laughs> we're, uh, 
we're closing up on time here. Uh, Steve Blank, thank you so much for joining us. It was uh, an honor to have you here, to hear your story and to get some insights. Same to you, Dries. Appreciate you joining, um, having another innovation expert uh, lead this conversation. So thank you both uh, for joining us. Oh, great. Great to, great to be here. And thanks for the great questions. Thank yeah. you. Well, folks, that was Steve Blank entrepreneur, professor, and father of the customer development lean startup movement. Stay tuned for our next episode, which goes live every other Wednesday morning. Until then, be sure to check out our website at mostawesomepodcast.com, follow our YouTube channel, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.